You're listening to 100 Words or Less with Ray Hargens. Well, hello. I didn't see you over there. No, I'm just kidding. Welcome to this podcast about independent music and the people who are creating it, documenting it, putting it out, all that fun stuff. This is another action-packed week. This week, I have Eric Rattensperger, who is the drummer slash vocalist for... I would say Screamo Legends. I mean, you know, some people may dispute that or hate that word, but that's fine. That's neither here nor there. Jerome's Dream. And I was really excited to have this conversation for a multitude of reasons. One, I just remember booking shows for these guys. This was like, gosh, maybe 2000 or something like that. So here we are. We're talking like 20 years ago, 21 years ago to be precise. And uh, I just really enjoyed the band, and I remember them, uh, Eric specifically, reaching out to book some shows in Southern California. And um, yeah, they've been at reactive again as of uh, 2019, and they are putting out a n- new sort of collection of older material called Presents on Iodine Records, or Iodine Recordings, I should say, a recently relaunched label out of Boston, Massachusetts. And you need to check out, first of all, all the stuff that Iodine is doing. They're doing some really, really cool stuff, but um, most specifically the Jerome's Dream stuff because um, I was very excited about it. And then, honestly, the first press of vinyl sold out in like a day. It's wild. But um, yeah, so Jerome's Dream has that coming out. I had to have Eric on, so that's what we do. But first, you should leave a review of this podcast on Apple Podcasts. It helps out the show tremendously. I know that sounds weird, but it helps the algorithm and then recommendations and all that sort of stuff. And plus, just tell your friends, because that's the best way that this thing can be passed around, where it's like, hey, check out this interview with this person. I see you. I see you. I'm pointing at you, listening to you know all of the previous episodes. Like Once you find out about this podcast, it's awesome. I love that. It makes me so happy that this thing grows over time and not just like, oh man, this episode is the most popular of all time, which there are episodes that are clearly the most popular of all time, but you you get what I'm saying. You're following along in this journey, and I appreciate that. And when you tell friends about it, it means the world to me. And finally, you can always email the show, 100wordspodcast at gmail.com. I love to hear from you, whether it's ideas about future guests or whatever the case may be, always down for that. Um, so yeah, let's dive into the conversation with Eric. Like I said, they are are an active band again. They are putting out stuff on Iodine Recordings. You can uh, check out iodinerecords.com and you can find out all of the pre-order information about their new LP, which is a collection of their older material called Presents. And uh, it's great because now this stuff will be documented and preserved for future listening pleasure. So yes, let's talk to Eric Really fun conversation. Now, here he is. I'll kind of draw you back to, uh, you know, we first ran across each other. Uh, I mean, I wanted to place the time of like, you know, definitely around the 2000 timeframe where, um, and I, 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 if I remember correctly, I, I know we obviously connected over the internet because you were looking for shows for Jerome's Dream in Southern California, and I most likely booked you guys at Coos Cafe in Santa Ana, or um, I know I saw you guys at the PCH Club as well. I just, yeah, I know. <laughs> it's like, but I, I yeah, exactly Coos Cafe, but um, I, I always, yeah, I know. <laughs> I, I, I remember, uh, you know 
like being able to help you guys out and, you know, uh, meeting you. And uh, obviously, cause you were, you know, kind of the de facto uh, show booker of the band. But I, I really, I, I always enjoyed watching you guys play because, you know, there definitely was, I mean, it, everybody that speaks about you guys is always like, Oh man, it was so sick. They played 10 minute sets and all this other stuff. But the the thing that I always found interesting was because you, Jerome's dream sat at this, you know, interesting intersection of you guys were clearly a part of a scene, but at the same time, you did not sound like many of your peers from, you know, Orchid page 99 and stuff Mm -hmm. like that. But you were all friends and you all like lived together. And there was that, weird feeling of the epicenter of stuff you know where it's like oh man all these bands from like the east coast are coming out here and like this is so exciting um i'm going to guess that at the time you were not be being able to look at this as a uh, special moment per se you were just doing mm-hmm. the band stuff um but in retrospect do you like look back at that and be like wow it's all weird that we were all doing this like together but separate like you know i don't i mean i'm there, there's a lot in there, but yeah, what does that make you feel? It makes perfect sense, and and yeah, you're right. Like at the time, and I and I, I yeah, I, I think we were a part of something special, but and we kind of knew. Well, we we just when we when we were doing it back then, um, you know, meet, meeting bands like Orchid or Page Ninety Nine, or I mean, countless others: Joshua Fit for Battle, Love Lost but Not Forgotten, Neil Perry, Hassani Sabat. Um, Reversal of Man, um, God, I mean, the list goes on, you know what I mean? There's just so many, so many bands um, in in that kind of sort of vicinity. Um, but no, it was kind of like this organic thing where we, we felt very much like outcasts, like, like most kids who start bands. And um, over time, we started, we started seeing this trend of, of other like-minded people and, and people in bands were we, we just found ourselves kind of being aligned with other bands. Uh, and it just felt like that's kind of what the world was. That's kind of what our world was. That's what, um, that's just sort of how it, 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 it went down. And we, over time we started seeing that there was something different happening. Um, Cause uh, you know, we grew up in Connecticut and I personally, like, I grew up listening to, like, you know, more of, like, the, the heavier metallic hardcore stuff that was coming through Connecticut at the time, like, in the mid-90s. And um, that's kind of what I knew punk rock to be, just going to this local spot called The Tune-In in New Haven, Connecticut. And, like, you know, if a band like Snapcase or Strife were coming through, I'd be stoked. Um, but then there was all these other more weirder bands that I would discover that, um, you know, well, I, I know you had Tim Singer on a while back from Dead Guy. Mm-hmm. And, uh, specifically, I remember this show. It was Snapcase. Um, who was it? It was Snapcase of Dead Guy and Refused. And, you know, Dead Guy, while on victory at the time, uh, you know, they were a, they were much different than like a, what a traditional hardcore band would expect it to sound like. And I think even at that earlier of, of time, you know, around 95, that's when I started seeing that hardcore could be different. And so when, <clears throat> to fast forward back to sort of what you're, you're touching on with regard to um, sort of where Jerome's dream kind of fell into the mix. Um, I think with us, you know, we, 
um, we just wanted to do things the way we wanted to without any kind of, um, uh, like we just didn't, we didn't want to try and slot ourselves into a template that, pe- that, that we're like, we were expected to be in just because we were a hardcore band. You know, we wanted to just do it the way we wanted to. And then, and so anyways, to fast forward to this whole idea of bands like page 99 and orchid and, and et cetera, um, you know, these, these other bands were doing it their own way too. And the results were, uh, you know, hardcore bands that didn't really sound like typical hardcore bands. And I guess at the time, at least the way I saw it, it's like, Oh, this is, this is like new and weird. And this is kind of like a different scene. Like it felt like sort of like an alternate world from the traditional hardcore that we grew up in or around rather. And, uh, Mm -hmm. And it felt good and it felt exciting, but there was no way we could tell that this, this was going to be sort of like a genre in itself. Um, you know, chaotic, chaotic, hardcore, I mean, people calling it screamo and all that stuff, which is, uh, you know, it is what it is now, but we never really referred to it as screamo back then. Um, right. You know, we were just a chaotic hardcore band, not knowing what we were doing. We still don't. <laughs> sure. Right. <laughs> We're still figuring it out, right? Well, and I, <laughs> totally, totally. And I, I think it, it it was interesting too. Your your experience of uh, you know having the touch point of a lot of those you know metallic hardcore bands like you were mentioning, yeah. and then being able to understand that there is a different path. Like once you start to discover other bands, you know that are putting out records on Ebullition or you know Portrait of the Past, like you know and all those things that were very influential for you and understanding that both of these bands are still part of the same scene, except like completely cut from different cloths, you know? Yeah. And back then, even though they're from different scenes, less so um, like, like it is today, um, because I feel like, especially with just sort of the realities of um, like Spotify and just how, how granular genres can be, especially the way kids are like now discovering these types of bands. And I think this is why in a way like quote unquote screamo has, has really been kind of has become amplified is because of kids abilities to um, deep dive via Spotify. You know, it's, it's less so digging through the milk crate at the show. And it's more so just like, you know, looking up a band like Fortress of Past or Reversal of Man or Orchid or page 99, and then seeing the 12 other bands that are kind of, uh, you know, associated with them, but through an algorithm, not through a show. It's like, it's an, it's just a different way of discovering this music, but yeah, back then, um, you know, I think there is definitely some weird crossover of bands and sort of one genre playing with bands in another genre. And that's actually one of the aspects of, of punk and like underground culture that I was really drawn to was that, that level of diversity that almost just kind of happened. It just was what it was like everything to me back then felt underground because the only way you could discover these bands were through going to the shows versus looking them up online. Yo, for sure. Like, and you, the only way that you uh, were able to even understand what a band looked like, (laughs) it was either seeing a picture in a zine um, or obviously going to the show uh, or, you know, looking at the liner notes to kind of have a small understanding of what a band was. But yeah, to your point to, to get that, actual connection you had to show up and you had to understand what the band was kind of trying to put across in that live setting. That was everything. 
yeah, and and it, it, when you put it that way, which is um, that's really yeah. I mean, to actually uh, look at a at a record and look at the liner notes, look at the, the artwork, packaging, the, the everything. Back then, it, it was it was such a big part of the discovery and like the feeling you got when you came across these bands. And your point actually makes me think of that label, Witching Hour, um, which was a small label from Indiana, um, who put out bands like uh, like Orchid and like Songs of Zarathustra and Book of Dead Names, and um, I think I think Locust might have even had something. Yeah, you're right. Them. Yeah, I, it, yeah he put out a lot of weird esoteric hardcore and when Jeff and I came across one of his records, because uh, Christopher Williams, who started the label, he, he was so fucking creative in, in his packaging. And I think that's one of the, the, the first things I was drawn to. And when Jeff and I were younger, you know, we used to just sit in his room and just listen to records, like just all night, you know, just, just one record after the other, or we would listen to a record on repeat. Um, Portraits of Past LP being one of them, but uh, you know, the packaging was like, okay, this is something I want us to to be a part of, or I, I want us to I want us to do our own version of this, and um, you know, eventually it was crazy because everything just kind of clicked in, and suddenly we were talking to Christopher. I think we played with Race Bannon, which was Chris Chris's band. Um, we played, uh, I think, New Bedford Fest. Um, nine, in 98 or something and, and Christopher Williams was there and he saw us and somehow we just struck up a conversation with him and before we knew it we were doing we were doing projects with him and the Orchid Skull Split was one of them and um, and we did another uh, split five inch with that band Book of Dead Names um, who has members of Songs, Songs of Zarathustra and um, uh, yeah just looking back on it on you know thinking about this because you can kind of hear me I'm in my head like going down the archival path. It's just um, when you think about how all this stuff kind of comes together and how organic it actually is uh, when, when it was back then, it's just, it's like less constructed. It's more so like, Oh, this thing is leading to this thing. And this thing is leading to this thing. And then before you know it, you have this kind of community of, of bands and like-minded people. And it's like a subculture within a subculture. <laughs> right. Yeah. No, it, def- it definitely is. Uh, kind of putting the focal point on you as a person, um, were you actually born and raised in Connecticut or did you move there? Yeah, no, I, I grew up uh, in Connecticut. I was born in New Haven. Um, yeah, I mean, the three of us are all from Connecticut. Um, you know, I grew up in a suburban town called Brantford, uh, right outside of New Haven. Uh, Nick grew up in West Haven, which was like kind of on the other side of New Haven. And uh, Jeff grew up in Waterbury. But the uh, the epicenter for us was New Haven. That's where all the shows and where everyone was hanging out and skateboarding, writing graffiti and stuff like that. So, um, yeah, but we're all we're all East Coast Connecticut boys. And um, I'm currently now in San Francisco, uh, as well as Jeff. I just moved here a year ago. Um, and I, I was in L.A. for a few years before that. And Nick, Nick is in Connecticut still. So. Um, yeah, we're, we're still kind of logistically spread apart, but at least, you know, Jeff and I are in proximity to each other. Right. Yeah. And, the the idea of, I mean, most people don't, I, I think have very much experience with Connecticut because it's such a, um, I mean, not only is it a small state, but there's nothing that 
you know, tourism, like people don't go to Connecticut, <laughs> you know, people, that's all a destination. Um, so because that's where you were born or you're there because you're, I don't know, a doctor or a lawyer living in Greenwich or something. It's like, a, it's a weird place because, you know, there's like a real clear divide between, uh, like economic segments. It's like, you kind of have what well, you kind of have your quote unquote middle class, but then you have like, you know, really wealthy people. Then you have, I mean, the schools there, you know, you've got Wesleyan and we've got UConn, but then you've got Yale, which is in New Haven. So it's just like a really, it's like a really weird makeup of people. I never really felt, I, I never really liked it to tell you the truth. Yeah. <laughs> well, it, it, it's, I mean, it, you're correct. I think the broad strokes of the state are definitely like, you know, very high socioeconomic, um, you're, you know, you only end up there if it's a, uh, you know, destination for a job or whatever, or you're just like, you know, traveling through to get to Boston or whatever. Um, but and I think uh, it, and that holds true for, for, for punk rock bands coming through as well. It's like, we are kind of this middle ground between New York and Boston. Um, you're exactly right. Like, and I think New Haven was sort of that, that middle point where bands just, just booked a show like, like between New York and Boston and, we got lucky enough to see uh, some pretty influential bands come through. I mean, that's the weird thing about Connecticut. It's like, even though uh, I, I, I didn't really care for it growing up, there, there was a thriving underground scene at the time, um, you know, in both skateboarding and punk rock. And there was a really strong graffiti scene uh, in the mid nineties over there. So it was like a really, it was a very confusing place. Like this weird, um, <clears throat> like, existence of a thriving underground culture but underneath like this this kind of like i don't know just kind of generic living um not yeah not to look at it in a negative way but I, i'm just drawing my own experience as a kid i mean obviously connecticut's not like that for everybody but yeah well i think they the i mean you probably articulated the uh suburban uh boredom that exists with the idea of like, well, what, what do you do around here? And then yeah. you start to see that there's different cultural touch points, whether it's skateboarding and graffiti and like you, all those things you mentioned, and then understanding that there is a different path than all of your other peers where it's like, Oh, so say I don't like soccer or football that much. Like what's, Oh, Oh, there's this other thing I can spend my time doing or whatever. Totally. And so, and, yeah. And I, and I think that's where a lot of, um, people like us who, who just kind of ended up in, in punk or punk bands or doing anything, um, you know, any kind of activism or I mean, whatever, like, again, getting back to the beginning of our conversation, just about having a level of sensitivity and awareness of our surroundings and other people. And, you know, I mean, punk, punk serves different purposes for, for different people. I mean, it could be a very self-serving platform in terms of, um, you know, seeking a safe haven from all the bullshit that you're, you're dealing with when you're younger uh, could be a, a platform for creative expression. And, and yeah, that's where a lot of people start messing with, with music and writing music and playing shows. And I mean, I mean, look at you, you know, you have this successful podcast and like, you know, you're, you're, you're doing it like at a like professional major level. And like when you're, when we're younger, right. It's like, you don't think about those things, but the way our experience with punk and, and all that, how it gets parlayed into other aspects of uh, your life down the road. Um, 
and again, to your point, what you were saying earlier, where it's like, whether it's uh, 20 years ago or, or, or now, um, there's this level of, um, I don't know, it's, it's like having like a little secret in your pocket at all times. You know? Right. Yeah. And it, it sort of empowers you to, to just go about your life, whether it's in a professional context, uh, personal context, like, and, and I never realized that until, well, I'm realizing that more now than ever, just how important punk in general has been to me sort of as a component of my identity and, and, and just sort of like a level of um, having confidence it's like having that little secret in your pocket and knowing that there's other people that feel a similar way as you and who are operating at their own level doing, you know, great things. But, but again, having that awareness, I don't know, it Mm. just, it feels good to know. And while we we might be a smaller group of the whole, I think there's a lot of people in our, in our world who are, you know, doing really amazing things. Oh, absolutely. And and I think, too, because of this subculture existing for, you know, 20, 30, 40 years at this point, there's more, uh, there are more touch points and more people. I mean, this will never ostensibly be mainstream. It's going to be much bigger than what it used to be, but there is always that shorthand of like, okay, cool. Like, you know, yeah, you know, the misfits, dead Kennedys, but like, how deep do you go? And like, how much can we nerd out about it? (laughs) And then that's, that's where it kind of circles back to the, Oh, Oh, you know, like seven layers deep. Okay, cool. Like now we can really nerd out about, yeah. Witching our records or whatever. Which is fun. But I I guess being older now, I mean, I'm 42 and um, you know, it's, it's come to a point where, well, you know, for example, like, like today we're rehearsing, um, you know, we, we've been rehearsing once a week. Uh, We have a space in, in Oakland and, um, yeah, and that's been such a wonderful aspect of, of our weeks. You know, it's like we, we have our weekly responsibilities, work, and you know, Jeff has a has a five year old son, and he's on dad duty and doing all that stuff. And um, but <clears throat> excuse me, on the weekends, you know, we we get in a room and we we get to play and we get to write and we get to just spend time with each other. Um, you know, we get to to just just be in our our. Our, our space together and um yeah at this point like the way i see it uh while it's fun to nerd out and get granular and, and go seven layers deep and talk about all the stuff uh, for me it's like become really simple it's like i just i just value my friends so much i value this band the music we play and you know as, as silly as it is it's just like i just like getting in a room sitting behind my drums and just playing loud and heavy music and, you know, having a beer or two afterwards or something and just hanging out with great people. Um, you know, we're, I feel really lucky having moved here a year ago because Jeff has been here for 20 years. He moved here shortly after we, we parted ways. Um, but there's also some, some really uh, amazing people up here as well. Um, you know, we got the Loma Prieta guys, um, and, uh, Jack Shirley, who we recorded with um, uh, our LP in 2018 and became friends with, uh, you know, just, just, it's just nice to have like a a nice little circle of people here who kind of understand where you're coming from. It's, it's nice. You know what I'm going to talk about, right? I'm going to talk about band merch because the place that you need to buy all of your band merch from the one-stop shop for the internet, the merch table to the stars, or I don't know why I'm saying that, but 
Rockabilia. Rockabilia is the best place to buy all of your band merch. And you can use this code 100 words or less, and that gets you 10% off your entire order. And trust me in saying that they have everything you could possibly want. You could buy it for your mom and dad. You can buy merch for yourself. You can buy merch for your younger siblings. Whoever is into music, you will find all of the stuff there. Independently owned, ships from the Midwest, incredible customer service. I know this all sounds like talking points, but straight up, it is the real deal. I love Rockabilia. I love their continued support, not only of this podcast, but many other podcasts that exist out there. It is so cool to see them support the scene, so to speak, but love what they do. Please check out Rockabilia.com and please use this promo code. It's 10% off, 100 words or less. That is the promo code. Please use it and buy so much stuff that you will just like have pallets of band merch shipped to your house. Maybe that's a little ridiculous, but you get what I'm saying. So hundred words or less, rockabilia.com. Have fun. Your family structure growing up, like uh, brothers and sisters in the house, uh, mom and dad present, like how, how did that break down? Yeah. So in my early days, um, you know, my parents divorced when I was seven. Um, I, I grew up with, I mean, I have two sisters, but when I was younger, you know, just had my older sister at the time. And, and that was kind of like the, the typical portal to, punk rock discovery you know she was a high schooler at the time and she would always well for one she had like all of the cure records on cassette and she had like more the smiths on cassette and uh well she also had like depeche mode in excess and you know these other bands and stuff but like when whenever she wasn't around i would just like hang out in her room and like put these cassettes on and um yeah that's kind of like where it started but she was going to some like after school kind of like creative program called ECA. I think that stood for educational center for the arts. And um, that was in New Haven, but she was like in proximity to a lot of punk kids. And so I think like at one point she ended up bringing home a mixtape and the mixtape had like, um, I don't know, like circle jerks and all these other old school hardcore bands and punk bands. I, I didn't even know. I mean, dead Kennedys and, countless others that I, I can't even, I don't even remember, but um, that, that kind of like blew the lid off for, for my um, sort of appetite for wanting to learn more. And, you know, so it's funny. I kind of like took the, took that tape, which was kind of like the baton. And then I just like ran with it for the rest of my life, you know? Um, but um, yeah, no, I grew up, I grew up under my mom's roof and um, you know, like, 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 like typical, uh, divorced parents, you know, that kind of just creates sort of a, an imbalanced, uh, you know, sort of dynamic at home. And it kind of uh, fosters anger and confusion and frustration and all that. And I think that's, that's definitely the kind of like what, what began the feeling of my, you know, my desire to, to, to seek things that were, um, that allowed me to be creatively expressive. And I think that's what happened with skating um, music definitely. You know, I started playing drums when I was twelve. Started playing like, you know, uh, like like loud music. Uh, started playing in bands basically when I was like fourteen or fifteen, and um, that stuff helped me. You know that those outlets really kind of got me through my my childhood. You know, because um, you know when you're young, you don't really understand why parents break up. You don't really understand why people argue. You don't understand why people drink. You don't understand why 
you know, why this and that happens. Um, so I feel really grateful and lucky that I was, uh, you know, I was able to find these things that kind of got me through. And also they really, well, well they like punk rock music and, and, and skateboarding were like the two main things, just like most, most people who get involved in this stuff. I mean, it's always, it's always punk and skateboarding for the most part. And the two go hand in hand in a way, cause it's, it's, it's more of an attitude. It's more of an approach to how you live your life. And when you're a young, angry kid, um, it just kind of makes sense. Uh, and I just leaned into it so heavily and, um, it really got me through. So like basically, you know, fast forwarding to, to when I was like 18 or so, that's when, you know, I was basically out of the house and I wasn't in college yet. You know, after high school, I graduated high school in 97 and I was, you know, playing shows at the time, going to shows. I was in a band called Kid Suspicious. Um, that was like a very short lived band, but that was actually my, I think like the first, first band that like actually kind of had this 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 tinge or like flavor of uh, a different style of hardcore so at the time you know i was listening to bands like 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 botch uh botch put out a seven inch uh sure which was fucking i it's the one with the gun on it i think i don't know yeah the john Bur- the john birch conspiracy i think oh, man yeah that was <laughs> so so good younger when listening to that kind of they were so ahead of their time like what they were doing um you know, and like one one point six band, another amazing like weird hardcore band that kind of more had like a Discord vibe, but like was still like really they were just odd. Um, and those types of bands really, uh, I don't know, influenced where I wanted to take things musically and creatively. And um, yeah, so I'm, I'm I'm a little bit I'm scattering a little bit just because. Um, no, no, it's fine. That's what that's what I'm here for. You know, <laughs> but. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. I, I, I'm gonna get. Ga- I'm gonna guess that with the um, you getting drawn to drums uh, first, that's really annoying for parents because that's clearly like the worst instrument to Absolutely. bring in the house. <laughs> and so, your 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 mom obviously like gave you your space. Like, did you have your drum set in your room or was it like in the basement? Like, how did how did that transpire? Well, I, I, first, firstly, you know, I was playing violin from third grade to seventh grade. Never learned okay. how to read notes. Never learned how to read sheet music. It was all by ear. Um, and I think, I don't know what year it was, but at one point my instructor realized that I couldn't read music. And he was like, okay. Like, what are you doing here? Yeah, I mean, <laughs> basically he, he had prepared, like, I just remember there was one like rehearsal after school and like I, I had to like be prepared to play this piece. And I forgot what it was, but I was ready because I had learned it on my own. And he he basically pulled a fast one and like he put a new piece of sheet music on the, the music stand. And I just looked at him and I'm just like, I I can't play this. He's like, why not? I said I can't read music. <laughs> and I was like in first violin section, and like for like you know three three or four years, I uh, I just duped the system. Yep. I didn't, I didn't know how to read. I was just always resistant, you know, in true punk fashion, I was resistant to like you know, learning how to read music. It's the same thing with piano lessons. My, my mom, you know, she, she signed me up for piano lessons. Um, you know, she encouraged me to join the orchestra, 
but it wasn't until that I, I discovered drums in the band room in school where I'm like, oh, f- fuck this. Like, I want to play drums. I don't want to play violin anymore. And so I quit violin. I begged my parents, who were divorced, but I, I begged them both because, you know, drums were expensive. And I just, I wanted, I wanted a drum set so badly after um, playing, playing behind a kit for the first time. I think I was in like sixth, sixth or seventh grade. And um, yeah, I'll never, I'll never forget when I got my first drum set. It was Christmas, um, and I remember I was at my dad's house at the time, and uh, he, it was like it was at night. He was like, "Hey, come come outside. I want I want I need to take you to the the car, you know." And like, or he had like a you know an SUV or something, and it was dark, so I couldn't really see. And I'll never forget when he opened the door and like the light went on, and there was a fucking drum set in the back of the the car, <laughs> and that really that was that was a real moment. I'll never forget that. Yeah, no, that's incre- that's incredible. Yeah. And so, so, like you said, your introduction to independent music was, you know, I mean, skateboard, and obviously your your older sibling and everything. Yeah. When did you start to um, feel like you were bringing uh, your own music into the house, so to speak? Where it's like, you know, you, when you started to go to the, you know, whatever mid nineties metallic hardcore shows and stuff like that. Um, was that? I'm gonna guess that was around that time you started to feel like you were getting injected to the scene, whatever that may mean. For sure. I mean, <clears throat> as a 16-year-old kid, mid-90s, yeah, I felt like I was a part of something, for sure. Going to the tune-in, um, seeing shows every weekend, uh, I felt like it, there, was some, there was something really happening. But in terms of my own musical uh, relationship with it all, in terms of like as a musician, um, starting Drums Dream in 97, and just i mean the whole thing with with the band is when we started um it was kind of an all or nothing type thing just like you know many other people who start bands when they're young it's kind of like okay we're gonna do this and we're gonna we're gonna take this all the way like without any um you know reservations or hindrance or or whatever reluctance we we just yeah we dove right in and so the three of us um that was it. Like we just became so bonded through the music and through its purpose and through sort of our intention of just making this music. We didn't really know where it was going to take us or, you know, we didn't have this, this thing where like, you know, we, we want to be the biggest band in the world. It was not about that at all. It still isn't. It's, it's more like, you know, can we like, make music that actually means something to us and then have opportunities to maybe play it live, you know? And, um, you know, one th- it, it was a thing where it was never like so clear cut. It was always kind of re- re- revealing itself over time. And so to answer your question, I think it, it wasn't until we started Jerome's dream and, you know, when we first started the band, we were really isolated we were really on our own, you know, we weren't necessarily, uh, you know, immediately embraced by the scene time. People didn't really understand what we were doing. You know, Jeff and Nick did, they didn't face the crowd. We didn't play on stages. Um, we are, um, I I think we were misunderstood, misunderstood in a lot of ways because we were just, um, you know, three angry kids, um, doing it the way we wanted to. It, It was very unconventional in how we, did it and I think with that a lot of other kids because they didn't understand it they uh they thought we were 
you know, either assholes or pretentious or, you know, and on top of that, we weren't very good, <laughs> you know, like we just, and it didn't matter. You know, we had shitty equipment cause we had no money. Um, and it didn't matter if we played 10 minutes, uh, cause all we wanted to do was just have that, that moment together of just pure, like, like unabashed expression of just what we, what we hold or what we held inside us. And we just needed those moments. And, uh, yeah, that's when I felt like we were, we were onto something, but for ourselves, you know what I mean? It's like, we were still yeah. playing shows and it, it took a while for, for people. I mean, it took a while. I don't know. Like I was gonna say, it took a while for us to like gain sort of an audience, but again, even back then it wasn't really, it's not like an audience. It's more like who are the kids who happen to show up at, in the basement that you're playing that night? You know, was it 20 kids that you suddenly feel a connection to because they just happened to be there? I mean, again, it was a very like communal type thing. And, uh, but, you know, slowly over time, it kind of changed. And then, you know, by a couple tours in, we kind of realized that something was happening and there was a, 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 you know, a subculture of these types of bands that were coming up on the scene. And, you know, like, like you said, Orchid and Page 99 and, countless others um you know at some point i can't remember exactly when but i i did realize that there was something significant happening because it, it just became kind of bigger than suddenly you see all the festivals and like when you look at these bills you know the festivals have like you know two two dozen bands that are of this particular genre and you're like oh wow like there's actually a lot of people who have kind of carved out this 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 weird little cluster of of a punk and um but again it's not i don't think i don't think in our day we certainly weren't the first i mean there were so many other um groups of bands that you know did it before us you know i i i think i think for us like you know we were really drawn to yeah abolition had some good bands for sure but like you know like gravity and um you know was a gold standard like um sunny yeah gsl yeah gsl from uh you know, angel hair and VSS and all that. Like, you know, we were always drawn to like anything that seemed more like, like weird and, and even more underground. We were always drawn to that stuff. Um, you know, I think that's why like back then we were really into bands like Honeywell and, um, you know, angel hair and, and uh, well, it's like, it, it, it's like those, uh, you know, when you start to discover, obviously, band, I mean, whatever, looking at bands like Shopmaker and Three Penny Opera and like, yeah, all, all, big one. yeah and it's like, the, to, to say that those bands are influential is, you know, an understatement because you're just like, but because yeah, most people look back at the late 90s and early 2000s and are like, oh my gosh, all these bands played together and there was like five kids there. Mm-hmm. And and then you could even go further back where it's like, yeah, Shopmaker probably collectively played in front of like 300 people, you know, like all over all of their shows or whatever. Um, of course I'm exaggerating, but no, it's just that. Yeah. I mean, well, yeah, you know, uh, Portraits of Past was the same way. It's like, I think that, you know, Portraits of Past is a band and, um, you know, how influential they, they have been to many, many other bands. Um, you know, when they were together, yeah, they, they played in front of maybe a couple hundred people collectively, not 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 including their reunion tour um, or reunion shows in 2008, which were 
two of the most incredible shows I've, I've been to. Um, those were in New York. One was in Brooklyn. One was in Manhattan at the cake shop. Uh, the Brooklyn show is at, um, uh, what's it called? Oh, death by audio. Yeah. Um, but anyway, uh, yeah, like those guys, they, they barely toured, um, and they broke up, um, <laughs> before the LP even came out. So it's like such a weird thing to like, you know, have a band like them, uh, have such a place in, in hardcore history. But, but again, in their time, they, they barely toured and yep. they even told me, cause I, I was, um, I was lucky enough to interview Rob, Rob and uh, Rex a couple of years ago because I have, have like a little podcast called Microspy. I haven't done it in a while, it's not since the pandemic really kicked off. But um, um, but no, I, I was talking to them about just like their time back in the day and what it was like, and you know they felt like outcasts too, and they didn't really have an audience back then. So again, the irony of of these kids, you know, making work that will. You know, stand the test of time, but in their day, they didn't really have anything weird. Yep. You know? Yep. Well, and I also think that, you know, like you were talking about, like when you guys first started to get out there and feel like you had some semblance of an audience, um, there, there's no path for, I mean, all of those bands in that time frame from a business perspective to be able to have any sort of sustainability. You were just collecting experiences and collecting tours very hand to mouth as you were illustrating. Um, and there was no end game where it's not like, Oh, cool. This is, this is how, this is where we are going to, uh, you know, aim our sights beyond just like, Oh, here's the next tour. Here's the next split seven inch we'll put out. Um, I'm guessing because of that, there was no, um, the communication that you guys were probably having amongst each other was very much the same way, just like whatever the next opportunity is. And there's no real end goal there. Um, I'm, I'm going to guess that's probably some of the conversations or lack of conversations you were having. Yeah. It's a really, it's a really good point. Um, I think for, for us and a lot of these types of bands is uh, at the time, and this is what I, this is another thing that I think you learn about being in punk rock and being in bands and, um, you know, doing, doing this whole thing is you, you garner a level of presence, um, in terms of, yeah, it, it's kind of like an all or nothing approach to your work, to your music, to your creativity, to your being is just having full presence. And I think that's what was really also special about being younger and doing it at the, at, not at the level, but just at, at the, at the velocity that we were doing it at was just full um it was an all or nothing type of thing and yes we weren't looking into the future we were looking into you know what floor we were going to sleep on that night after the show who you know yeah and like i wouldn't change a thing it was it was one of the best times it was like just not not having a, a goal other than just focusing on on playing a show. I was going to say like the best show you can. It's not even about playing the best show. It's about just tapping into something that um, you, it's about tapping into something that you're just, you're, you're, you're willing to, to, to be vulnerable with and to, to maybe show it to 10, 20, maybe 30 people if you're lucky. Um, and that's really what, that's really what it was for us. Like, yeah, we didn't talk about sort of like the future goals of a band. Like, 
uh, we just did what we did. And um, I think that's also why we and maybe a lot of other bands just kind of stop. Because I think what happened was, I mean, I personally just burnt out. And I think it's just because um, when you're playing this type of music and when you're, when you're tapping into that kind of like emotional territory, like all the time, it's really fucking hard. Um, at least it is for me. Uh, and it was, it was for me in our recent tours, like, you know, when we were touring before the pandemic, it took me so long to bounce back. Um, not just like physically, but like emotionally, psychologically, like it was so, it was a tough one. And I think what I realized is, um, you know, for, for me, like my personal relationship with this music and how we play it, um, it requires a lot. And I think, um, you know, when you're a band from 97 to 2001 and you're, you're young and you're angry and you have really nothing, nothing beyond the horizon, you just have your two friends, your shitty equipment and whoever's willing to book you, uh, and yeah, Thanks for booking us, Ray. <laughs> um, <laughs> no problem. Yeah, we, yeah, I mean, God, Coos, that, that's so funny. That brings back such an old feeling, like Coos and like, uh, what, oh, are, yeah. the, what are the other um, spots out there? Pickle, pickle, oh, you uh, play, you, 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 yeah, Pickle Patch, and then uh, you, did, you guys definitely play. I'm, I'm fairly certain I saw you at the PCH Club as well. Or PCH Club, yeah. 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 And then we played, um, we played uh, oh, Empire Club in San Diego, I think. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I forgot his name, but the, I think the singer of Unbroken actually uh, helped us get that show. And um, oh, nice! And uh, he was so nice. And you know, we rolled up in our station wagon a day early, and Jimmy Heat World was playing with Jay June, and uh, he let us in, and that was so much fun. It was so cool to see. I mean, you know, Jimmy Heat World—they were like in a fifteen-passenger van at the time, and of course, for us, we thought that was like, you know, you've made it. It's like right, Jim, like this fire red. Uh, 15 passenger van, like, damn, Jim world is killing it. Um, but yeah. Um, anyway. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, so I got, I got sidetracked. No, it's, it's, <laughs> no, you're fine. You're fine. Okay. The, um, and so like you said, you know, I mean, the, the, the dissolution of the band was very much just, you know, abrupt, like everything has been pretty, you know, documented and all the conversations you've had around that. And so when you transition out of it, and like you said, there was a lot of, um, you know, uh, for lack of a better term, recuperation time for you to be like, Oh, you know, I, I still want to play music, but it doesn't need, you know, it's not, I, I don't want to continue down that path or whatever. Uh, but I know you went to school and everything. So what was your, I guess, next steps and paths forward where you were like, all right, this is what I want to do with my life now. Yeah. I mean, well, 2001, the, the band broke up. Um, it was abrupt. Um, I think I announced the breakup or I announced that we weren't playing any more shows after the one more we had booked in Boston. I think we were in Jersey. We, were, we had played with the assistant and um, I forgot who else played, but I just remember like, you know, a couple of guys from Seisha were there. And <clears throat> the, you know, the irony of that was, I think we played Seisha's last show at ABC No Rio um, not long before that, but I don't know. I was, I was like a really, the way I was when I was younger was just kind of, you know, I was, I was just kind of a, well, here's the story. I mean, basically I got out from behind my drum set. I walked up to the front of the, you know, where Jeff was and stuff. And I just said, I just, I want you all to know that, uh, you know, we're playing our last show tomorrow. So this is it. And I, 
didn't discuss it with Jeff and Nick. You know, I, I selfishly just kind of pulled the plug in real time at a show in front of, you know, I think there was like 40, 30 or 40 kids at that one. And, um, um, yeah, it was such a dick, dick move to, to do it like that. Yeah, <laughs> for sure. <laughs> you know, like who am I to just like pull the plug on something that, uh, you know, th- three, three people, you know, two besides myself who poured in everything. Um, it just wasn't, it wasn't the right way to do it. And I did it. And so anyway, like, like with that abrupt stop, um, you know, I think Jeff was really hurt. Jeff, um, you know, was really angry with me for years. And, uh, you know, I didn't talk to those guys for a long time afterwards, you know, quite a few years. Like I, I moved to New York, um, went to school, kind of just shifted my whole life. And, um, what did you study in school? I studied, I went, I went to FIT fashion Institute and, uh, studied advertising and marketing. Cause I was really into like, um, like layouts and editorial, a lot of like print stuff at the time. So like, sure. I, um, yeah, I was just, I was, yeah. And I'm like, Oh, maybe I'll, I'll work in fashion or advertising or something, you know? And, um, but yeah, my, my New York trajectory was also really, I, I kept, I kept getting pulled back into music over the years. Um, yeah, it's hard to quit that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah. But did you did, yeah. did you feel like the um, because of the burnout that exists within the context of that? Did you feel um, that you wanted to not disavow everything that you had previously done, or you know, like turn your back on the scene, whatever you know, cliched yeah, thought? That's a really good question because that's exactly what I did. I, okay. I completely disconnected from punk rock. I was like, I was so, I don't know what it, I think really what it was looking back on it was, it was, it was a kid who was growing up who like needed to seek other things to kind of understand the bigger picture. And, you know, like we talked about a little bit earlier, like, like no matter what, like, you know, if you're involved in punk rock, you'll always have some aspect of that in your pocket, no matter how you're living your life or who you're, around at any given time but for me like after after the first iteration of the band um yeah i I just as as a person i felt like i needed to expand um sort of my my experience with different people and different places and um and so that's what i did you know i i just i tried to just i tried to figure things out basically i tried to see what i liked what i didn't like and it wasn't, it, it wasn't so clear in those terms, but it was more like, okay, I'm going to move to New York and I'm just going to put punk rock on the sidelines and I'm going to like try to do well in school and I'm going to like live in New York and, you know, just kind of figure things out. And um, I don't know, it was kind of a weird 10 or 15 years because like I had played in other bands and bands that were completely like the furthest, the farthest thing from being punk and um you know i realized that um you know well i guess i think it was 2017 when when me jeff and nick spoke for the first time so it was almost like 16 17 years um you know that we actually had spoken as a band and i think it was because it was Mm -hmm. the 20th anniversary because we had started in 97 so I, and Jeff and I were, we started talking over the years, you know, I'd come through San Francisco, we'd grab dinner or beers or whatever. And, 
kind of reconnect. Um, you know, now we talk almost every day, but uh, over the years, sporadically, we would see each other and, um, you know, but it wasn't until 2017 where like the three of, three of us got back together on the phone to like discuss well, not to discuss, but just to kind of reminisce about the old days and to kind of just, um, you know, acknowledge that it's been 20 years since we started this band. And, um, but then the idea of, of resurrecting it came up and, um, now it's become such a prominent part of, um, our lives again. Uh, and it kind of just happened, you know, in, in a way where now it's just like my, my, my social world and my friends and stuff. It's like, it's it's all back to this kind of epicenter of, of, of punk, and I'm so grateful for it because, like, you know, we all have our responsibilities, and you know, we have our, our jobs and um, families and stuff like that. But uh, you know, it's at least for me, it's pretty significant to have this back in my life at, at the capacity that it's at. You know, like being able to talk to, to someone like you, you know, an, an, an old head who, who we uh, communicated 20 years, 20 years ago. And now we're like coming full circle talking about all the old days. And it's just, again, the, the, the older I become, the more it blows my mind that this is still like a part of the conversation. <laughs> right. Yeah, you know? for sure. And, and when you guys, you know, uh, came back and obviously put out, you know, a record, toured, played shows, what was, um, you know, and you were arguably playing, well, not arguably for sure playing the largest shows you guys have ever played, you know, when you did. And so was that, um, I I guess because you were all adults now, like you were, you know, prepared for that to a certain extent, Mm -hmm. was it, uh, you know, overwhelming in any sort of nature or was it kind of like, well, we're just glad we're here. A little bit of both. Um, okay. We, we, we actually worked really hard um, to, to prepare for the amount of touring we did. Because, uh, you know, we were playing our first shows since we were a band when we were kids. So we, we probably practiced way more than we ever had um, when we were kids. I mean, I think before our first tour coming back, you know, we had, we had rehearsed like 10 days. You know, we were in a room for 10 fucking days playing this shit. And, um, you know, we had added a second guitar player. Um, this is this guy, Scott, who helped us while on the road playing second guitar. And, um, and we, we were writing new music. We were resurrecting old music. We were trying to figure out how to make it all kind of work and feel right. And, and I think that preparation allowed us to kind of hit the ground running. So when we, when we played, for the first time, we actually did a secret show in Waterbury, Connecticut. Um, on our, so we drove all of our backline from West Coast to the East Coast. And um, I think our first show actually was in Connecticut. So it was kind of a cool thing to have done that. So basically what we did is we posted on Instagram just saying, hey, we're, we're doing a show um, limited to 40 people, RSVP. So we basically did like a small um, kind of private show in this rehearsal space that we had gotten. Um, so we arrived to Connecticut to play like two or three days of rehearsal. And then we kicked off tour. Um, and, uh, basically we invited all these kids to come to this random warehouse that we were playing in, in Waterbury, which is where Jeff grew up. And it was kind of an emotional moment to, for one, have kids come to this place. It was like a very like remote 
warehouse that we are um, rehearsing in. And these kids drove from everywhere. Kids drove from Massachusetts, kids drove from Rhode Island, uh, all points of Connecticut, I think a couple from New York. Um, and suddenly we were hanging out with, with this group of punk kids. Uh, and so we, yeah, we, we played sort of a, a quote unquote warm up show and just hung out with these kids and, and um, drank a couple beers and it was really fun. And then we, we kicked off tour with uh, Loma Prieta the next day uh, in Hamden, some new spot. And yeah, anyways, like, and then, yeah, then we realized it was, it was a much different scene uh, from back in the day. We were playing in front of a lot more people. We were playing on a, a lot of stages, which was new for us because we were so like not into that at the time, but because there were so many people at these shows, it just, it just had to be that, you know, but we were f- totally fine with it. And actually I was really, I was really like, I mean, Jeff and I mean, I've, I have experienced playing on stages like over the years with other bands, but Jeff and Nick, you know, it was kind of like a whole new process, but they were so adaptable and it was, it wasn't a thing at all. It just felt natural. And um, <laughs> there was a real collective overwhelm of just the fact that like, I, I had to keep like, like, checking in with myself and being like, how the fuck are we, like, how are, how are these many kids here? Right. You know, no, no one should remember us. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Why are they here? You know, how do people like it? It's still crazy to me uh, that we even have any attention at all. You know, I mean, I'm, we're so, so grateful to just have a community, have, have people, uh, you know, following what we're doing and stuff. But um, yeah, it kind of, it makes me, it, it means a lot to, to all three of us. And, um, you know, I think this new iteration of the band, it just makes us want to, you know, ch- like go harder and, you know, challenge ourselves musically. And, you know, I think our, our, our creative, our creative expression and, and aspect of this in terms of like the actual music, you know, we're, we're now we're, we're kind of taking things in a different territory in a different sort of direction. Um, and it just makes sense. Um, just sure. It's just happening the way it's happening. And fuck, I'm, I'm stoked. Uh, you know, the new stuff that we're working on now, we're, we're actually, we actually started writing a new record um, a couple months ago. Once, once we're able to get a room with the masks off, uh, we started rehearsing, um, you know, every week and we're working on, on new material and, um, you know, we haven't officially announced it, but I might as well just mention it now. So we're, we, we've kind of recruited Sean Leary from Loma Prieta to play second guitar with us. And he's become, uh, he's, he's a part of, he's a part of our, our little circle now. And, um, we're so stoked for that because Sean is an amazing person and he just gets it. And uh, Jeff and I played with him a couple times and, you know, we're like, this, this just feels good. This feels right. Like he has such good instincts and creatively we're all kind of in sync with each other. So yeah. So now Sean, Sean is with, with this band. Um, nice. That's, that's pretty amazing. Yeah. It, yeah, no, absolutely. And the last thing I want to hit on was the idea that, um, you know, because you are all, uh, you know, adults and you have so many aspects to your life that, you know, you are not going to, you know, tour 150 days out of the year and stuff like that. And you're more 
deliberate with the choices that you make mm-hmm. uh, based on your time. Uh, do you feel like that has benefited you to where the opportunities that you guys do participate in is a little bit more meaningful than you guys just, you know, playing a random show because that's what you do on a Saturday or whatever, or is it kind of on the flip side where because the time is so strapped that like you are not able to participate in all the things you are that you wish to participate in? Well, it's funny because when we, when we started touring again, that level of touring that we did was, it was kind of, um, we kind of approached it in the way that we would have when we were younger. We were, we were, we were taking on so much because we, we just wanted to come out swinging. And we kind of did that. You know, we were, we were lucky enough to um, tour with bands that we, we loved and respected already, um, Loma being one of them, uh, Touche Amore being another one, Dangers, uh, Soul Glow, Gouge Away, For Your Health, um, you know, uh, Horsewhip, which is um, Jeff Howe's new band. Uh, Jeff was in Reversal Man. Um, we, we just played with so many great bands. Uh, Daughters, um, we did some touring with them. Uh, and it was over months. Like, like we, we did the entire U.S. We, we did four weeks or so in Europe uh, for the first time, I might add, which was pretty significant for us. Like, I think there was one point where I was like, I said to Jeff, I'm like, dude, can you fucking believe that this band from Connecticut is like playing these stages in Europe. Like, you know, it's just, again, it's, it's just so weird. Um, but it was awesome. And, you know, with, with the success of daughter's latest LP and just how many people were coming out to see him again, what a, what a cool thing to have, like, you know, a fellow punk band like daughters, um, and to like know that we were cut from the same cloth, but they're like kind of on this this tidal wave of like, you know, popularity. And then the two of us being out in Europe together playing these these shows with these crowds and um it was such a surreal thing. But anyway, in terms of like the capacity or the the scope, fuck man, we, we toured so much, like half the year almost it seemed like we were always we were touring somewhere or at least four months. And then we got back and we were slated to play uh, a Roadburn Festival in the Netherlands, but, but again, COVID hit and it just fucked up the, we weren't done. We were going to play Roadburn. We were invited to play Russia. We had, ne- we had never been there. Like it just, yeah, we, we just, we, we wanted to just keep going as hard as we could. But then once everything stopped because of the pandemic, um, you know, to, to your point or your, your, your question about sort of whether or not now are we going to return to that, um, that sort of, uh, that kind of scheduling? Probably not. I think the pandemic has really like, it's kind of put the brakes on things in terms of, um, you know, just kind of thinking on how, how we, we can spend our time and, um, you know, instead of like 30 days in the U S maybe we'll do some, a cluster of shows in new England or something, or maybe we'll do like a five day West coast tour or something. I think we just need to be a little bit more, um, yeah, selective with how much time we put out. Cause upon moving here in SF, like I got a job and you know, I, I can't, I, I can't, um, I can't compromise that really. I, I can't afford to. <laughs> sure. It's like, yeah. And that's the thing with becoming an adult, you know, bears certain level of responsibilities and 
Um, so we do what we can, but honestly, to get to get in a room once a week, uh, to write music, to play, to just hang out and be with like-minded people. I mean, that's, again, it's so simple, but like, that's what I'm most grateful for. And then of course the extended community, you know, being able to talk to, to you or to like work with Casey from iodine or to, you know, have, um, you know, occasional check-ins with other bands all over the world. Like, you know, it's so cool. Yeah. And and so many people from all walks of life and, you know, you've done dozens and dozens of interviews and I know you're, you know, you're, you're, Actually, is Taken still playing music? What are you guys doing? Yeah, no, we are. I mean, we did it very much in the same boat as you guys, where it's like we just got, yeah, it's like we get these opportunities to like go over to Japan and it's like, what? Okay, I guess we'll do this. But yeah, I think, right, it's amazing to be able to have any uh, semblance of attention that's paid towards art that you put out, you know. Yeah, Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I, but I, I think you articulated it well where. Well, or thinking of the idea of like, you know, when you put out art out into the world, you don't control it anymore. It's just, it's out there, you know, and it's whatever people will want from it, they will get from it. And I think that's what makes it really cool that, you know, bands like you guys are able to exist in a world where you don't have to, the, the economy of attention, um, is like when you're on that, that hamster wheel of like, Oh man, we got to put another record every two years or whatever. And, that, that becomes really difficult and it's, it's hard. <laughs> but if you're in this world where you're not competing for everybody's attention, you're just competing for the attention to the people that probably should pay attention to it. And that makes it more sustainable where you can do what you're doing and be more deliberate about your, your choices. Yeah, completely. Um, and I think that's where, you know, now to fast forward to now, um, that's how we feel. Um, we don't feel any pressure to, make another record. We're just making another record because, you know, Jeff and I live in the same city now and it's just much easier to, to be creative together. I mean, when we wrote our LP uh, in 2018, we wrote it in three different places, you know, we wrote it remotely. We had very little rehearsal time. It was really ambitious for us to try and do that. And I'm proud of the record, but it, we kind of made it in a vacuum. And I think the difference now is, you know, we have, uh, you know, tons and tons of shows under our belt in this new iteration and so so we just have a different approach to to the creative process and you know to your point we're not on a schedule so we can just kind of be and let things kind of develop as they they will and um you know that's what i'm really excited for it's just sort of you know kind of just just working quietly behind closed doors while we all kind of uh, collectively get through this awful time that we're in and um, continue to stay as safe as we can and keep making you know, the music that we love and that means something to us. Yeah, that's that's all anybody can ask for, <laughs> realistically. Yeah. Yeah. Our, our and our ability to create. Yeah, exactly. That's that's the, uh, the human existence in a nutshell. Yeah. Well, Eric, thank you so much for hanging out, dude. I appreciate you letting me ping pong around your brain. Oh, man. This was so much fun. It's so funny because before we started, I'm like, man, like for some reason I got in my head about like, oh, what, like, what are we going to talk about? Like, I don't think I'm going to be that interesting or like whatever, but you've done a great job at at pulling, extracting the, 
the, the, the nuggets the nuggets from me because uh yeah some i don't know for some reason this morning i, I felt kind of vulnerable and not really sure how i was going to do boy that was great right eric just a just a treat a really nice trip down memory lane and uh, we got to talk about all those fun things that us old guys like to talk about <laughs> Joking aside, I really appreciate you coming on, Eric. It was nice to have you. And then uh, shout out to the fine people at Iodine Records for bringing this idea to me. And I was like, oh, heck yeah, I would love to catch up with Eric. And then uh, also Mike, the publicist, just publicist extraordinaire, publicist to the stars. But uh, yeah, shout out to him. And shout out to all those people who bring people on the show, because that just makes me feel all warm and fuzzy inside. So next week, it's a big week because we at this very podcast, are celebrating nine years of existence. It's technically been existing longer, but nine years as far as nine years worth of podcast episodes, which is insane to say. But uh, that's all culminating in bringing on one of my favorite bands in hardcore right now, Ryan Savitsky from One Step Closer. Let me tell you, I'm obsessed with this band. I could not wait to hear the new full length that's coming out. And uh, I just had to have Ryan on, and we had a really fun conversation. So I figured that was a a very appropriate nine-year, not kind of like looking in the past, but looking towards the future, because it's great to be able to talk to a hardcore kid that is like, you know, arguably like 20 years younger than me. It's great, and I love that. So that's how we're celebrating our nine-year anniversary, and that is next week. Okay? Until then, please be safe, everybody.